Well, last Sunday, we were introduced to Joseph. Pastor Jared did a wonderful job teaching us, and we learned that Joseph was uh, very much the loved son, the favorite of the father, but equally the least favorite of the brothers. Joseph was loved by his dad and hated by his brothers. And part of the reason was, was because his dad gave him this robe of many colors and it signified value and worth and even royalty. And Joseph was the 11th of 12 sons. He should not have received that robe, but he did. And so his brothers hated him for it. And then if that wasn't bad enough, Joseph started having these dreams. And in these dreams, he would see things that symbolized his brothers bowing down to him. And older brothers don't bow down to little brothers, right? All the older brothers in the room said amen. Uh, and, and then he had, a, he had a dream where not just his brothers, but his father and his mother. And in a society and a culture that so valued the elders in the community, it was a scandalous dream to think that the mom and the dad would bow down someday. And so Joseph is pretty hated. And as we continue this story, Joseph's sitting at home and his brothers are out working the fields. And, and Joseph's dad, Jacob, asks Joseph to go and check in on them and see how they're doing. They're in a place called Shechem, which is about 50 miles away. And he says, Joseph, go bring me back a report. Let me know how the brothers are doing. And so uh, Joseph takes off and he finds them not in Shechem, but in Dothan. They've moved from Shechem to Dothan about another 15 miles away to find better pasture. And this is where we're going to pick up the story in Genesis 37, verse 18. It says, when Joseph's brothers saw him coming, they recognized him in the distance. And as he approached, they made plans to kill him. Here comes the dreamer, they said. Come on, let's kill him and throw him into one of the cisterns. We can tell our father a wild animal has eaten him. And then we will see what becomes of his dreams. Joseph for the first time in his charmed life, <laughs> is about to get punched in the mouth, literally and metaphorically. He's about to have his life turned upside down. And although you and I probably can't relate with this exact story, I think we all can be honest and say there's times where life punches us in the mouth. Lunch, life ever punch you in the mouth? <laughs> life ever knock the wind out of you? Has life ever knocked you down? Maybe it's a relationship that falls apart. Maybe it's a diagnosis that you receive from a doctor. Maybe it's a financial catastrophe. Maybe it's just the daily grind of doing life. What all of us find is at times knocked down by life. And what do we do on those days? And this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to learn three things from this story. We're going to learn that we, number one, we have to learn a painful truth. Number two, we have to trust a hidden path. And number three, we have to see a greater hope. Painful truth, hidden path, greater hope. So first, let's talk about the painful truth that we have to learn. So the brothers see him coming. And put yourself in the sandals of these brothers. They've been out there working in the sun, you know, doing the father's work. They're exhausted. They're tired. Joseph's back at home. He's got his feet up. Right? They're, they're, they see Joseph coming, and I picture them looking, at, looking out across the horizon. They see Joseph walking towards them, and I think they, a couple thoughts probably crossed their mind. Number one, finally we have Joseph away from the father. He's, he's 60 miles from home. He's not protected. Daddy can't save the day. Daddy can't step in and bail little Joey out. Joseph is finally at our hands and at our mercy. And then I think when they saw him coming, they probably like, it says that they recognized him from a distance. So I wonder if they're like, look at that stupid walk. 
that's Joseph, isn't it? And look, and he gets closer. Look at his stupid robe. He's wearing his robe. Who wears a long sleeve robe in the desert? Look at this kid. And then look at his stupid face. Like, can you just kind of picture them like getting angrier and angrier as he gets closer? Come on. If you've never told some, if you've never thought someone has a stupid face, you're not human. Like, and, and, and this is how they felt about Joseph. And then they say to each other, let's kill him. And let's kill him and let's see what comes of his dreams. Here he is to bring another bad report to dad about us. Let's kill him and his dreams. And, and, and in verses 23 and 24, it says that they stripped him of his, his robe. And the Hebrew storytelling is very succinct. There's not a lot of detail. But if you look at that Hebrew verb that says that they stripped him of that robe, it's the same verb that's used in Leviticus chapter 1 to describe the skinning of animals. So what's being described in these two verses is, is a brutal assault. Picture his brothers like a pack of dogs just jumping on him scratching at him, tearing at him, slapping him, punching him, kicking him, ripping not just this robe off, but probably all of his clothes off, and, and smacking him and leaving him bloodied and naked. And then they throw him into a pit so deep, so vertical, that there's no way out, there's no food, and there's no water. And then the Bible says, after they did that, they sat down to eat. That's cold. That's cold. To, to, to beat the tar out of your brother and then to say, oh, I'm so hungry. Like, beating my brother up took a lot out of me. I really could have a good, I could go for a good sandwich right now. And I want you to envision him just sitting above his cistern, this, this, this well that had been dug, and he can hear them up there enjoying their meal, and they can hear him crying out for help, and they find none. And here's, here's what we learn. Here's what we see uh, uh, from this story. The painful truth is this, that those closest to us can hurt us most. Those closest to us can hurt us most. And there's two primary reasons why that's true. Number one, those closest to us have the opportunity. They have our trust. I'm sure as Joseph walked towards them, he never thought, they want to kill me. He never thought that this would be the day that he might die. He trusted them. You know, I'm sure he realized they didn't like him, but he didn't expect them to do that. And the people closest to us, they have our trust, and they have the opportunity, and they have the proximity, and they know us. And so they have the opportunity. But also people who are close to us, they don't just have the opportunity, they have the ammo. Your family knows all your weaknesses and all your insecurities and all the stories of the dumb things that you did and all the embarrassing words you used to not to be able to pronounce and the time that you wet yourself on the playground, all these sort of stories that only family knows about you. That's just a hypothetical story, by the way. It's not from my life. <laughs> and they can use those things against you. And Joseph's brothers knew Joseph well enough to hurt him because they said, here comes the dreamer. They were mocking him. And the people closest to us have the opportunity and the ammo to hurt us. So what do we do? And I'm sure every single one of you in this room has been hurt by somebody at some point to varying degrees, someone close to you. What do we do? And human nature tells us we have two options, fight or flight. And some people choose to fight and they become angry and hateful. And the things that have been done to them don't make them better. It makes them bitter. And there's an old saying that hurt people hurt people. And, and you can see this, right? You maybe can see this in your own life or the lives of people around you. And we allow our pain and the things that have been done to us to begin to define us. And, and we don't get healed and we don't get well. And out of our pain and out of our brokenness, we become a fighter. We become antagonistic. We become aggressive. And, and sometimes, actually, people who have been hurt badly will hurt others be, preemptively before they can hurt them. They assume this person's going to hurt me eventually, so I better hurt them first. And so we fight. The other option is, is flight. 
And flight might sound better, but it really isn't because flight is I'm going to not trust anyone. I'm not going to let anybody in. I'm going to isolate myself. I'm going to avoid all forms of community and commitment. But there's a problem with flight. And C.S. Lewis in his book, The Four Loves, uh, really explains the problem well. Look at this quote. He says, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Have, Have you learned that in your life? To love anything, to give your love to your child, to give your love to another individual, it's you're making yourself vulnerable, right? Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it up carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. And here's what will happen. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will actually become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. And here's what I think C.S. Lewis is saying. We cannot experience the best parts of life without making ourselves vulnerable to the worst parts of life. You can't have the best that relationships have to offer you without the possibility of having to endure and suffer under the worst that relationships can do. Life has a way of knocking us down. We were created to share life with each other, to share our hearts with each other in deep, meaningful ways, but we do it in a broken world where it's sinners trying to serve each other and we end up hurting each other. So life has a way of knocking us down, and fight doesn't work, and flight doesn't work, so what do we do? I wanna give you three words that maybe will help some of you this morning, and they all start with the letter R. Hopefully it will uh, be memorable and helpful. Here's what we do. Number one, we have to resist the urge to do what we always do. So you know in this room right now if you're a fighter or a flighter. Is flighter a word? Fight, if you fight or if you choose flight. You know which way you go. And we have to, in those moments, resist the urge to default to one of those two things and to make that our identity and our automatic response to pain. The second thing that we have to do, and if we don't do the second one, we'll never be able to do the first one. The second thing we have to do is we have to, here's the R word, we have to root, root our hearts in the unconditional love of the Father. Until you understand and receive and let your heart's roots grow deep into the fact that the Father loves you. Listen, you're sitting here this morning, and maybe you think because you're here this morning, God's a little happier with you today than last Sunday when you weren't here. You do your devotionals, and you think, God's little bit loves me a little more because I actually got up early, and I read my Bible, and I prayed. And when we live that way, then our, our security and our sense of being love depends upon our performance. And that's an exhausting way to live. But the heart of the gospel is that we are accepted by the Father, not on the basis of our work and our performance, but on the basis of the unchanging work and performance of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And so if you cannot root your heart in the unconditional love of the Father, here's what you'll do. You'll run around from person to person, from relationship to relationship, saying, will you give me the unconditional love? And we cannot give to each other what only God can give to us. We end up looking horizontally for what we can only find vertically. God wants to give us that unconditional love. And one of the reasons why we deal with so much disappointment and disenfranchisement with relationships is we ask other people to do for us what only Jesus can do. So we resist the urge to do what we always do. We root ourselves in the love of the Father. And then the third word is this. We remind ourselves of the grace that we need. 
Sometimes we look at people who have hurt us and we put ourselves on a pedestal above them. And the gospel has a way of evening the playing field and reminding us all that we all need grace. Miroslav Volf said that we will not forgive each other when we exclude our enemies from the community of humans, which means we dehumanize our enemies, while we also exclude ourselves from the community of sinners. When we don't see that we need the same grace that the people who have hurt us need, we'll never be able to move forward and beyond the painful truth that those closest to us hurt us most. The second thing that we learn in this story here is that we have to trust a hidden path. How many of you remember, how many of you remember Choose Your Own Adventure books? Anybody read those growing up? I loved to read growing up. I mean, I, read, I grew up in a time where we didn't have iPads and smartphones and all that sort of stuff. So we pretty much either had to read or go outside and play in the dirt. And so I, I chose to read. And I loved reading. And I loved Choose Your Own Adventure books because I felt like, finally, I'm in control of what's happening here. And I was one of those people that would cheat when they read, their, you know what I'm talking about. I'd keep my finger on the decision page and I would flip forward to both options. And if one of the options was like, bad choice, you died, I would go to the other option and continue. But I, I love the whole idea of like, there's multiple paths in front of you and you choose your path. And at this point in the story, there's multiple paths in front of Joseph. And there's the path of the brothers. The brothers are like, let's kill him. Then the oldest brother, Reuben, speaks up. Now, we don't know why Reuben spoke up, whether it was good motivation or self-serving motivation. Some scholars say, well, Reuben, the oldest brother, felt responsibility because he's the oldest and he had to do the right thing. And other people say, no, that's not Reuben's character, actually. Reuben probably wanted to do this so that he could get in good with Jacob, the father, and then be restored to the oldest position in Jacob's heart instead of where Joseph had taken over. But for whatever it is, this is what Reuben says in verse 21. And Reuben heard of their scream. He came to Joseph's rescue. He said, let's not kill him. Why should we shed any blood? Let's just throw him into this empty cistern here in the wilderness. Then he'll die without our laying a hand on him. Reuben was secretly planning to rescue Joseph and return him to his father. And so Reuben says to his brothers, if we kill him, his blood is on our hands. But if we just accidentally throw him in this pit that he can't get out of and he starves to death, well, I mean, the blood's not on us. And the brothers are like, yeah, that's a good plan, Reuben. And so they, they, they go with it. But Reuben's like, I'll come back later and, and I'll, I'll get him out. And then Reuben leaves, and we don't know why or what he was doing, but he's not there, and, and, and these, these uh, Ishmaelite trader, traders come by, these basically human traffickers. And Judah, the fourth oldest, has a plan. Let's look at Judah's plan. Judah says to his brothers, what will we gain by killing our brothers? We're going to have to cover up the crime. Judah's like, we don't want to live with this. So instead of hurting him, let's sell him to those traders. After all, he is our brother. It's like this, all of a sudden, he feels this sense of responsibility. Like, he's our brother. Like, we should at least human traffic him and not kill him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood, and his brothers agreed. So when the Ishmaelites, who were Midianite tra traders, came by, Joseph's brothers pulled him out of the cistern and sold him to them for 20 pieces of silver, which scholars say that 20 pieces of silver was not a lot of money for an able-bodied young man like Joseph, they basically sold him cheap. And the traders take him off to Egypt. So you see three paths in this moment. You see the brother's path, let's kill him. You see Reuben's path, let's scare him. You see uh, Judah's path, let's sell him. But there's also a hidden path here, and it's God's path. And God's path is, 
Let's prepare him. Now, it's easy to read this story and be like, yeah, we know the end of the story. Like, this works out super sweet for Joseph. But Joseph didn't have the book of Genesis in front of him when he was sitting in the bottom of the pit. He couldn't flip a couple pages ahead and say, don't worry, I'm going to be the most powerful man in Egypt soon, so it's cool, I'm good with it. He didn't know where this path was leading him, but God had a hidden path. Now, the truth is, is that most of the time you and I are pretty convinced we know the best path for our lives. We, we know what God should do for us. We have insight and understanding into the ways in which we wish God would direct our paths. But what we see in the scriptures is that God has a hidden path often. It's not always a path that we would choose. Think of Abraham, who was very comfortable and very wealthy, and God said to Abraham, I want you to follow me to a place, and I'll show it to you once you get there. Talk about a hidden path. We think of Daniel, who's sitting in the lion's den thinking, God, uh, hello, I prayed, I served you, I obeyed. What am I doing here? He couldn't see the hidden path. You think of Esther, who ended up as a refugee in a beauty pageant, which is basically, again, a human trafficking celebration. And she ended up in this palace, enslaved to this king, couldn't see the path, but we know that God was preparing her for something. Ruth, who was uh, widowed and became a refugee in a community where she had no hope and no future, couldn't see where she was going, but there was a hidden path. Isaiah says in Isaiah 55, 8, 9, Speaking as God, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Listen, are, are you okay with that? God's thoughts are not your thoughts. God's ways are not your ways. Are you okay with serving a God whose thoughts are infinitely higher than yours? Can you trust a God whose ways might be in the opposite direction of the way in which you would choose to go. Can you in that midst trust a hidden path? Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. There are some things that God reveals and there are some things that he holds on to. And there's a hidden path. We can't always see or understand what God is doing. But listen, just because you don't know what God is doing doesn't mean he doesn't know what he's doing. Just because you can't see the path doesn't mean that there isn't a path. In fact, very interesting, side note, this story takes place in a town called Dothan. And Dothan shows up many years later in the Old Testament. It's in Dothan where the prophet Elisha and his servant are surrounded by the Syrian army. And Elisha gets a vision of the hidden work of God that, there is a, that, the, that he has a supernatural army ready to defeat the Syrians, even though the Israelites are terribly outnumbered. And Elisha says to the servant, don't be afraid because there are more for us than against us. And the servant's like, uh-oh. Like, Elisha's lost his mind, little cuckoo. Like, Elisha, I'm looking around. It's you and me, and it's a, it's a few scraggly people and some sheep and goats, and there's a Syrian army that has us surrounded. And then Elisha prays, God, open the eyes of my servant and the servant can see in the heavenlies what God is doing. And this is the exact same location where Joseph sat in the pit thinking, what are you doing, God? I cannot see your work in this moment. And we learn here to trust a hidden path. F.B. Meyer, a Baptist minister in England years ago, says this, and I I love this, this quote. He says, little did Joseph ever think that he would look back on that day as one of the most gracious links in a chain of loving providences, or that he would ever say to his brothers, be not grieved nor angry with yourselves, because God did send me here before you. 
And we'll see in a few weeks, that's exactly what Joseph says to his brother someday. It is very sweet as life passes us by to be able to look back on dark and mysterious events and to trace the hand of God where we once saw only the malice and cruelty of man. I don't know what path you're on this morning, but I do know this, that God can use that path to prepare you for whatever he has for you. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, said this when he looked at the suffering in his life and the sorrow in his life and the struggle in his life. He says, I have learned to kiss the waves that throw me against the rock of ages. I have learned to kiss the waves, the trouble, when life knocks you down, when it knocks the breath out of you. I have learned to kiss the waves that slam me against Jesus, the rock of ages. And sometimes life throws us down in such a way that it brings us face to face with our need for Jesus. And that in and of itself is a tremendous gift. And so we learn to trust the hidden path. The brothers, when they watched, I can't imagine what the brothers were thinking as they watched Joseph go off in that caravan, but I'm sure they thought, we'll never see his stupid face again. We'll never hear about his robe again. We'll never watch dad choose him over us again. His dream is dead. And of course, we're gonna see in the next few weeks that the dream never dies if it's a dream from God. No person can tell you that the dream is dead if God gave it to you. We trust the hidden path. And the last thing, I'm gonna ask the band to come up because we're gonna sing a song as we close. We have to also be able to see a greater hope. So here's what happens next. Reuben comes back and he's like, guys, where's Joseph? And they're like, oh, don't worry, we sold Joseph and we got some money. Good news. And Reuben immediately begins to just freak out. And he's like, guys, what are we going to do? What are we going to say to dad? He knows Joseph came to us. And so they come up with this plan where they take Joseph's colorful, beautiful robe, and they tear it into pieces. They slaughter a goat, and they put the blood of the goat onto the robe, and then they bring it to Jacob, Israel, the father, and they say, hey, dad, we, were, we found this robe in the desert. Do you recognize it? And this is what Jacob says. Look at this. He says in verse 33, then the father recognized it immediately, and he said, yes, it's my son's robe. A wild animal must have eaten him. Joseph has clearly been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes and dressed himself in burlap, which meant he was mourning. He mourned deeply for his son for a long time. His family all tried to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. He said, I will go to my grave mourning for my son. He said, the rest of my life I will die sad and heartbroken about Joseph. And then he would weep. And then the story shifts from where they are to many miles away, and it says this. And this is how it ends in chapter 37. Meanwhile, the Midianite traders arrived in Egypt where they sold Joseph to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And Potiphar was captain of the palace guard. Now this is the point in the story where it's like, this is like a cliffhanger, right? This is like when you're binge watching something on Netflix and you're like, all right, one more episode. It's 12.30 in the morning. I gotta get up in the morning. And then the episode ends, you're like, no, I gotta watch the next episode. Cut to 3.30 in the morning when you're still sitting there watching your show. And this story ends and we're just like, what happens to the brokenhearted father? And what happens to the betrayed brother? What will become of them? And we'll see this for the next few weeks, the way that this story ends. But this story seems to end with no hope. And yet in the midst of this story, there's a greater hope. 
And on the worst day of our lives, we have to be able to see the greater hope. Now, what is the greater hope? The greater hope is this, that Joseph was sent by his father to his brothers, but his brothers rejected him and hated him. And they tore his clothes off of him, and they beat him, and they bloodied him, and they left him for dead. That doesn't sound like great hope, but here's the great hope. There's a greater Joseph, and his name was Jesus. And just like Joseph, Jesus was sent by his father to his brothers and his sisters, and they rejected him, and they hated him, and they stripped his robe off of him, and they beat him, and they whipped him, and they tortured him, and they, and they slammed a, a crown of thorns upon his, heads, his head, and they, they nailed him to a cross, and he suffered, and he died. And we see Joseph in this story at the hands of his tormentors, and he finds no mercy from his brothers. But later in this story, when his brothers are at his hands, they find mercy. And it reminds us of Jesus who found no mercy at the hands of those who crucified him. But what do you and I find at his pierced hands? Mercy and grace. There's a true and better Joseph. There's a greater Joseph. Jesus, sent by the Father, betrayed by the brothers, suffered and died for you and me. So that even on the worst day of our lives, even when life knocks us down, we have eternal hope that there's more that there's a way forward, and his name is Jesus. Let's pray together this morning.